your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Good afternoon, and welcome to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Wellness Community. Your host is Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Wellness Community. This hour is designed to inspire, inform, and to help you live better with cancer. Now, here's your host, Kim Tibaldo. Welcome to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Wellness Community, a new internet radio show that focuses on informing and inspiring people to live well with cancer. I'm Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Wellness Community, an international nonprofit organization dedicated to providing support, education, and hope to people with cancer and their loved ones at over 100 locations worldwide and online at www.thewellnesscommunity.org. Before we begin today's topic, let's move to a segment we call Cancer in the News, which highlights the latest cancer headlines. I'm Bill Schaefer, and this is today's Cancer in the News. The Food and Drug Administration recently approved Sancuso, the first and only patch to provide up to five consecutive days of control of nausea and vomiting for patients receiving a moderately or highly nausea-inducing chemotherapy regime. Worn on the upper arm, the patch delivers a steady dose of a drug called Renesitron, which prevents nausea by blocking serotonin receptors. Renesitron is already in use as an anti-nausea medication and is currently delivered by injection or orally via tablets or solution. When compared in a clinical trial, the patch fared equally well in preventing chemo-induced nausea and vomiting as the oral product did. Nausea is one of the most common side effects from chemotherapy, and researchers believe that by applying the patch in advance of chemo treatments, patients will be able to increase their physical and emotional comfort levels throughout the treatment process. Chemotherapy-induced nausea and vomiting, CINV, are commonly cited by patients undergoing chemotherapy as highly feared side effects. In addition to its social and emotional effects, if left untreated, CINV can lead to dehydration, malnutrition, treatment delay, or even discontinuation of treatment. While not all chemotherapy patients experience nausea, those that do are sometimes forced to stop their cancer treatment prematurely. By using the patch, patients will be able to avoid nausea and continue their chemo regimes undisrupted. As a result, Sancuso may have the potential to increase survival rates among patients. The most common side effect from Sancuso is constipation, which occurred in 9% of the patients who participated in the clinical trial. The remaining 91%, however, tolerated the patch very well. Sancuso should be available to patients by the end of the year. In other news, the FDA also approved a new cancer radiation treatment called RapidArc, which dramatically speeds up the radiation delivery process to patients. RapidArc received approval from the FDA in January of this year and over the past nine months has been installed in 30 centers in the United States, and that number continues to grow. Approximately 70% of cancer patients in the U.S. undergo radiation either alone or in combination with chemotherapy or surgery. This new radiation delivery system is considered a huge technological step forward because treatments that once took 10 minutes can now be completed in less than two. For patients receiving daily radiation treatments, this means less time lying motionless on a treatment table. Although radiation is an effective cancer treatment, scientists discovered that a primary side effect is damage to the surrounding area cells. 
The speed of rapid arc's delivery of radiation to the target lessens the chance of patients accidentally shifting positions, thereby damaging other tissue. The cost of rapid arc is similar to other radiation therapies and is covered by Medicare and most insurers. I'm Bill Schaefer, and that's today's Cancer in the News. On today's episode, we will focus on cancer survivorship, how it is defined, and what it means for someone when treatment has ended. Today, there are more than 12 million cancer survivors in the United States. In 2005, the Institute of Medicine released a report from cancer patient to cancer survivor lost in transition, which highlights the gaps in resources available to individuals moving into the next phase of life after treatment. We have a wonderful panel here today to discuss what people can do to help bridge that gap and offer a wealth of information on life after cancer treatment. First, we have Rich McKesh, a non-Hodgkin's lymphoma cancer survivor and participant at the Wellness Community of Southwest Florida in Sarasota. Rich was also a participant in Cancer Transitions, which is a collaboration between the Wellness Community and the Lance Armstrong Foundation. The program consists of a six-week program that addresses the physical, psychosocial, and practical needs of survivors after cancer treatment is complete. Welcome, Rich. Thank you very much. And next we have Dr. Julia Rowland. Julia is the Director of the Office of Cancer Survivorship at the National Cancer Institute. Thanks for joining us, Julia. Oh, it's lovely to be here today, Kim. Thank you. And last but not least, we have Gwen Darian, a cancer survivor, uh, Editor-in-Chief of CR Magazine, and Director of the American Association for Cancer Research's Survivor and Patient Advocacy Program. Gwen oversees initiatives that promote uh, partnerships between advocates and researchers, including including the organization's renowned Scientist Survivor Programs. Welcome, Gwen. Thank you for having me, Kim. So I really am pleased to have all of you um, on the show with us today. So I just really want to jump into the conversation. I want to begin by asking each of you what the term survivorship means to you. You all come from uh, from different areas, different walks of life, um, and we keep hearing this term, cancer survivorship. So, Rich, I'm going to start with you. What does that term mean, cancer survivorship, to you? Well, I think I may see survivorship as a little bit differently than, than many people. Uh, usually, I think when we think of survivorship, we think of somebody that's made it through a plane crash or a war or a flash flood or maybe a hurricane. However, having had cancer, uh, I came to realize that my survivorship began the moment the physician told me I had cancer. Mm-hmm. Uh, my mind was just bombarded with <laughs> everything, uh, many concerns and many fears. Uh, what was I going to do? Um, would I have insurance? Uh, what kind of pain I would have, etc. And I, I really had few answers at, at that time. But when I came home, I sat in my chair, my favorite chair, and sat down to reflect on the diagnosis. And I determined that I had to put some boundaries on cancer. I looked at the word cancer, and I saw that there was no word I or no word we in, in, in the word cancer. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, I thought, how am I going to, to blend myself with cancer? And I came up with a hybrid word, I guess you'd call it, uh, that was going to see me through my cancer treatment and beyond. And the word is can survive. Not C-A-N-C-E-R-V-I-V-E, but C-A-N-S-U-R-V-I-V-E. This way I put I in with cancer, and we were now going to be a team uh, to work uh, in my favor. I really felt that cancer as cancer was it was going to put me at war. I mean, cancer was on one side warring, and I was on the other side warring back. And I didn't want to do that. I wanted to 
somehow negotiate uh, my process through uh, the treatment that I was going to receive. And so I used the word can survive. And you really just you just created your own definition, your own framework for what yeah. that was going to mean for you. Exactly. And I took it to the place where I was receiving my treatment, and we would be sitting in our little swing-back chairs getting our treatments, and I'd come in and say, how are you doing today? And they'd say, I can survive. <laughs> and, and it made all of us feel, I think, more hopeful and gave us a direction. It's, it's a word I'd like to include in the dictionary someday. <laughs> I, I love that. I, that's a great goal, Rich. Fantastic. So, Julia, you're, you're the director of the Office of Cancer Survivorship at the National Cancer Institute. A big job, a big title. Tell us, in, in your office, how do you talk about the definition of survivorship? Well, let me make two definitions here. One is the term that serves the derivation of this. So who or what is a cancer survivor? And the National Cancer Institute, when it established the Office of Cancer Survivorship back in 1996, embraced the definition that that was then put forward by the advocacy community. And that was that a person could call him or herself a survivor from day one and for the balance of that individual's life, whether they went on to ultimately die of their cancer or of something totally unrelated. The the champions for that really came out of the National Coalition for Cancer Survivorship, and the reason they put that definition forward is they recognize that more and more individuals who are diagnosed today are going to live long-term with this disease history, and that you couldn't wait until you were five years without any appearance of the disease to call yourself a survivor. They didn't intend it to be a label, in other words, to penalize somebody for this, by labeling them as a cancer survivor, but rather to get the medical community to think about what should we be considering, expecting that you're going to have years ahead of you after this treatment. Survivorship, the office defines a little bit differently than, say, Rich uh, just defined it for his personal perspective. We consider survivorship research in particular studies that address the long-term or late consequences of surviving cancer. So all of these things that we began looking at once a formal treatment ends. The medical consequences, the physical, psychological, social, economic impact, the existential things that one must encounter and deal with in the wake of having been treated for cancer. Okay, okay. That, that helps to give us a really good framework. Gwen, let me, let me have you jump in uh, on this conversation. You are dealing with this issue personally and professionally. What do you think about when you hear the word cancer survivorship? Well, I think that um, I, I, I think that I build a little bit on both what Rich and Julia said in in two different ways. One is, as you pointed out, being a cancer survivor myself, but then also dealing with a lot of cancer survivors. And I think that I haven't really re I haven't really revisited my the initial definition of survivor of cancer survivor, which essentially to me means that I survived my diagnosis of cancer. It doesn't necessarily mean I've ultimately survived cancer, but I've survived my diagnosis of cancer. Mm -hmm. And I think very personally, um, I've gotten to the point where I actually have to do the math to figure out how many years it's been since I was diagnosed with cancer. <laughs> and um, the, uh, my, the, uh, our team that works on the magazine, when I do my editor's letter, has actually have to fact check how many years I'm a survivor, <laughs> which I think is a really great thing. Um, so it, I'm a 15-year survivor of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma now. And um, I think that the, but I think that the whole notion of surviving cancer is a continual process. 
and you working from being in a short-term survivor where your concerns are very, very different to being a kind of middle-distance survivor where you also have a different point of view. And then at, and in, my, in my case right now, I'm a long-term survivor, and each, each of those phases has very different things and very different impacts. And I think what's surprising for um, for me and for all for my friends and everybody that I talk to is how much of how many how many issues you continue to deal with as a cancer survivor that in many ways you thought you would put behind you. And so it is a long term, as Julia said, survivorship. There are survivorship issues, and and I think that that is probably a surprise. And a lot of it, much much of it, has to do with some things we're going to talk about later, yes. which is um, what cancer is a chronic illness. How many years do? What is what is the definition of cure? Yes. I mean, this is yes. and these things have all evolved. Yes, absolutely. We are definitely going to jump into all of those issues. We're talking today about cancer survivorship. We have uh, Rich. Uh, from Sarasota, Dr. Julia Rowland from the National Cancer Institute. We have uh, Gwen Darian from CR Magazine, the American Association for uh, Cancer Research Day. We're talking about cancer survivorship. We're talking about the needs of patients uh, post-treatment, and we will be back shortly to pick up this uh, wonderful conversation. Thank you. Your life, your health, your network. Voice America Health & Wellness. Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle coworkers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. For more than 25 years, the wellness community has been the nation's leader in providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or at one of our 26 centers in the U.S. and abroad, the wellness community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-WELL or visit us online at www.thewellnesscommunity.org. That's thewellnesscommunity.org. The Wellness Community, celebrating over 25 years of cancer support, education, and hope. It attacks the brain, and you might not know what hit you. It's a stroke, and it can cripple or kill you. If suddenly you're numb or weak on one side, limb, or face, it could be a stroke. Get help. There's no time to waste. It could even be a sudden, severe headache without cause. If you wait to get help, time lost is brain lost. Maybe it's a loved one slurring their speech or dizzy. Call 911 and get medical help quickly. There are even more symptoms that I did not mention. So call or hit the web for information and prevention. Blacks have a higher occurrence. Do you want to know more? Call 1-888-4-STROKE or visit www.strokeassociation.org. High blood pressure, diabetes, and obesity. All make the risk of a stroke more likely. But remember, if it happens, do not delay. Or disability might be the price you pay. A public service message brought to you by the American Stroke Association and the Ad Council. Opinions, options, answers. Voice America Health and Wellness. 
You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Wellness Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now, here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Wellness Community. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. I'm Kim Tibaldo, and today we're talking about cancer survivorship and the specific needs that people face uh, during their life after cancer treatment. We have a great panel with us today. I want to go back to uh, Dr. Julia Rowland, head of the Office of Cancer Survivorship at the National Cancer Institute. Uh, Julia, we hear more and more people saying today that cancer is becoming a chronic uh, illness. We're seeing now for the past few years a decrease in mortality rate from cancer. Um, What are your thoughts on that word, on the idea that cancer is becoming more of a chronic illness? So, Kim, one of the great success stories as we ended the last century and we race into this new millennium is, is, the, is our ability to better detect early and to treat more effectively these many diseases that we call cancer. The testament to those successes is the growing population of individuals who are living long-term with a history of cancer. As you mentioned earlier in the program, 12 million of these individuals in this country alone uh, with that history. The main important issue here, if you like, is that we are rapidly turning what used to be, earlier in the 20th century, uh, uniformly fatal illness to one which individuals can live with long-term. The issue of it becoming a chronic illness is both a, a wonderful gift to be able to say, gee, you can have this diagnosis and continue to have a full and rich and meaningful life. The downside is... The, as, as Gwen, I thought, very nicely stated before, it's not as though once treatment is over, your, your travel with the disease is over. In other words, you may be disease-free from a medical point of view, but not really free of your disease because of the consequences that may attend to that. And that's why more people are looking at the idea of seeing cancer as perhaps a chronic illness where there may be periods of treatment and then wellness, no active treatment, the disease may come back in some form, you may be retreated, and the course extends over time. You know, Julia, I've heard, you know, we, we, we hear the phrase, and I hear some patients reacting negatively to the idea of us calling it a chronic illness. They say, you know, my husband has diabetes, he has to test his blood sugar every day, maybe give himself an injection. You know, I had scarring surgery, I lost my hair, I was out of work. I, you know, to me, that's, not a, that, that's, that's pretty acute, pretty serious, very different from what, what some people think of as a chronic illness. Right, and I think what's really challenging with cancer is that what people need to realize is these are many diseases. It's not a disease like diabetes or heart disease. Mm-hmm. It is many kinds of cancer. Cancers and the pathways for these different cancers are very different. For some, as you say, you might have very limited surgery, minimal side effects, good prognosis, very little residual concern about what's going to happen. You pick up your life, you move forward. For others, they may have much more intensive therapy. It may go on for longer periods of time. They may continue to take some medications to reduce a risk of recurrence in the future, a disease coming back in the future. And they may have problems related to the illness, like uh, fatigue or sexual dysfunction or pain syndromes. And then there's another category of people who are never really quite disease-free who are on some kind of therapy permanently, if you like, that looks more like the picture you might describe, say, with diabetes, where it's never going to go away, but we can control and maintain it, which is why people are shifting to this 
chronic disease model as one that we might apply in several cases for cancer survivors. So so really, bottom line there is there is no one-size-fits-all when it comes to cancer. Absolutely not. Very and, important take-home message. And people really need to come up with their own definition of what works for them. Mm-hmm. Now, Gwen, let's go to this idea that I think, you know, we've talked about this idea that if you don't have a recurrence for five years, you are cured from cancer. Is that still a benchmark that we're talking about today in the medical world? I think that it's, it, I mean, I think it, again, as Julia said, it depends on the different kinds of cancers that one has, but it's it's something that people used to say a long time ago. I mean, when I was diagnosed, five years was the cure rate. Well, that wasn't true. Mm-hmm. And it was what you use in the, in a medical context, what means cure in a medical context is, what, is not what means cure to me. And I will never forget um, a colleague uh, whose mother had had breast cancer. And five years and two months after she had completed treatment and was supposedly and was in remission, her cancer recurred, and she felt so unbelievably betrayed. Mm. Um, and I think you just... What the doctors used to explain to all of us was you're, you're, um, you're cured when your risk of, of getting the same cancer is the same as the general, general population. Mm-hmm. That doesn't take into account the fact that cancer survivors have a higher risk for a cancer, whether it's the same cancer or whether it's a different cancer that's treatment-related. And so I think it's a very problematic word, and it's a very it's very interesting because I um, a number of years ago I published an essay about the notion of cure, and just like chronic, it depends on what side of the what what side you're on. Yes. So people that had um, more advanced disease found the whole notion of cure very problematic because it alienated them and differentiated them from people who had earlier stage disease who believed that they were cured and that's all they really wanted to talk they did not want to talk about the possibility of something that would happen to them in the future of having a recurrence and it's the same thing with chronic um, we did we did a piece in an essay on chronic and that is comp- that is absolutely relative to where you are with your disease so it is it's individual it's disease oriented and i don't think that it is um, I don't. I don't personally think it's a useful thing to speak about. I think that it is a part of a, a larger dialogue. I also think that are you cured if you have ongoing psychosocial issues? Mm-hmm. Are you cured if you have ongoing sexual dysfunction? Are you cured if you have um, a limited lung capacity because of radiation on your lungs? Yes. So there are so many different ways of talking about cure. So. Before it was no cancer in your body, yes. but it wasn't. Um, it wasn't. You can't have. I was thirty-five. You know, you can't have. You you will. There's ninety-nine percent sure you won't have kids. Well, yeah. that's a pretty big deal. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> pretty big side it, effect. It, it's a pretty big side effect. Yeah. If you're thirty-five years old and are still are still entertaining. You still have some hope of having having children. So, I think that I think that the 
the really wonderful thing about the, the the evolving dialogue and conversation around cancer is that it's become much more multidimensional and much more nuanced. The difficult thing about it is that nobody can say, "Well, it's five years; you're absolutely cured," or "You, um, or this is absolutely going to happen to you." And I think that the uncertainty of that many people can't live with, and living with uncertainty is one of the most difficult things to do after a diagnosis. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, one of the things that people learn at the wellness community is how to live well with cancer, regardless of where you are in the experience, what the stage of disease is. We have a lot of people at the wellness community who have late-stage disease, metastatic disease. They know they're they're likely not going to be cured from cancer. So they're, they're in our organization trying to find a way to live well with cancer today, learning how to be in the moment and really get through this experience today. Or um, if you have no, I'm sorry to interrupt you, yes. but if you have no ever evidence of disease, living with the uncertainty that it may come back. That it may come back and how do you manage that uncertainty? Right. As you said, living with so many uh, of the, um, you know, both emotional and physically debilitating side effects right. uh, of cancer. And you're right, disease-free does not mean that, uh, that the cancer has left your life completely. Um, and we see folks, met, you know, even decades later living with some of these side effects. Um, Rich, uh, I know you participate at the wellness community in in, uh, in Sarasota, Florida. Um, you and I have had a chance to talk a little bit about your own personal experience and journey. Um, tell us, when you were finishing up your treatment, what were some of the biggest challenges that you saw ahead of you, and was it difficult to find resources to help deal with those issues post-treatment? Yeah. Um, I'd say the the biggest issue that faced me after treatment uh, was regaining my self-esteem. I mean, all I had to do was look in the mirror, and I saw myself, and it was like I got through treatment, and this is this is where I am. And I recognized uh, pretty quickly that I needed to start setting some goals for myself, some short-term, some intermediate and long-term goals. Uh, those would I would set up, you know, in, in terms of, working with my family and friends, my physician, um, hospital resources. The wellness community was just a, a huge uh, boost for me, in particular their group therapy uh, sessions, because I felt I was with people who were going through what I had gone through, and they really understood. Uh, we could share, we could cry, we could laugh, and it was, it was wonderful. Um, also, I was part of the uh, Live Well program, and that was a six-week program that was also offered by the wellness community, that uh, just dealt with a lot of issues that really helped me uh, boost my self-esteem after the, the uh, stem cell transplant. What were and, some of those issues that that, uh, that that program helped you through, Rich? Well, one of them was exercise because I'm uh, I'm not an, an exercise lover. <laughs> and so um, every every meeting we had started out with light exercise, and when it was too much, you could just step aside and sit down. Luckily, I got through all of them, but it was it was great because it got me in a pattern that I've been able to follow since. We dealt with nutrition uh, issues, um, also self-esteem issues, which I thought was really good, and also developing a, a care plan for ourselves, uh, which I found very, very helpful. We're going to yes. get into that topic of care planning uh, shortly. Um, Rich, when did you finish your cancer treatment? Well, the first time in 2003, and then I had a stem cell transplant at finished in February of 2006. 2006. And are you still participating in, in programs at the wellness community? Um, I am doing some speaking for them, uh, but I have uh, graduated from, 
I, really, I could still be going to the groups because mm-hmm. I found them so, th- those so helpful. But the last thing that I did do was the uh, Live Well program with under the Lance Armstrong Foundation, and that was uh, six weeks and well worth it. Excellent. And so that program uh, included components of support, talking about some of the emotional issues that you're facing. Yes. The program included uh, some physical activity, learning how to exercise, uh, dealing with some of those issues. Uh, yes. Talked about some of the nutritional issues. Uh, I know the program also deals with some of the medical issues uh, that people face post-treatment. Well, we had speakers there also who would uh, talk about all these issues and address concerns that uh, any people in the, the group had. Excellent, excellent. So um, today on the show we're talking about cancer survivorship, some of the unique issues and challenges that people with cancer uh, face post-treatment. We have a lot more to cover today. We're going to talk about uh, survivor care planning, treatment summaries when we get back from the break. Thank you. Opinions, options, answers. Voice America Health & Wellness. Hello. Hi, Bill. Uh, This is George Dewey from up the street. Oh, hey, George. How you doing? Good, good. Say, I noticed you've been walking to work these days instead of driving, Mm. and I uh, don't quite know how to say this, but... But... But what? But... But... Your butt. Your buttocks. Your butt. I think I found your butt on my front lawn. Have you recently lost it? As a matter of fact, I have, George. It's about time someone noticed. Well, it was kind of hard to miss, if you know what I mean. Anyways, would you like it back? Would I like it back? No, not really. So it's okay if I throw it out? Sure, that's fine. Take it easy, George. Small step number eight. Walk instead of driving whenever you can. It's just one of the many small steps you can take to help you become a healthier, well, you. Get started at www.smallstep.gov and take a small step to get healthy. A public service announcement brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle coworkers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. For more than 25 years, the wellness community has been the nation's leader in providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or or at one of our 26 centers in the U.S. and abroad, the wellness community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-WELL or visit us online at www.thewellnesscommunity.org. That's thewellnesscommunity.org. The Wellness Community, celebrating over 25 years of cancer support, education, and hope. Your life, your health, your network. This is Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Wellness Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now, here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Wellness Community. 
this is Kim Tebaldo. We're back talking about cancer survivorship. We have a great uh, panel today. We're talking about the needs that people with cancer face once treatment is completed. Um, we we want to talk a little bit about what we're hearing now, the idea of a survivor care plan. Uh, once someone has completed treatment, they really are faced with a, an entirely new set of issues, set of decisions. Um, Julia Rowland, can you tell us what a survivor care plan is and why it is important for people who are finishing up their cancer treatment? Okay, I'm going to address that in two seconds. I wanted to respond briefly to a comment that Richard had made about what it's like finishing treatment and not having resources available because I think historically what often happened is there was a great sense of relief and congratulation. You made it through these arduous and highly toxic therapies and, you know, good luck, come back, we'll see you in three months. And you can imagine, uh, and I'm sure many listeners, this sort of sense of being overwhelmed, of the lack of information, now what? Now what do I do? I've put my life on hold for X number of months, and everybody expects me to put all the pieces back together, and I'm trying to make sense of what just happened to me and deal with the residual effects, the side effects that may still be lingering. So this whole era recently of developing survivorship programs have really been to fill that need, recognizing that it doesn't end when treatment ends. In fact, a whole new set of challenges arise. As um, Gwen was saying earlier, this is that second season of survivorship, if you like, from acute survivorship now into extended survivorship and making that transition from being an active patient to really being in the recovery mode. In the IOM report that you mentioned earlier, Kim, the Lost in Transition report, one of the things that was proposed in here and is being championed in the advocacy community is the development of what are called survivorship plans. So, Julia, let me just say, we've heard some patients say, you know, as you're saying, folks say to patients, get back to normal. It's time to get back to normal. And we've heard patients say, normal as it existed before this experience isn't there anymore. So the idea is I have to create a new normal for myself. That's what we all talk about now is this new normal that one is inexorably you've changed forever if you like by this illness event not necessarily for the worse and sometimes it might be in some areas for the worse but simply different and it's trying to figure out what is that new normal so the survivorship plan actually has two basic components Mm -hmm. the first of it is a treatment summary knowing what it is that you've experienced and that includes what type of cancer you had the diagnosis, the type of treatment you received, the surgery, chemotherapy, the radiation, all very specifically detailed, any complications you might have had or services that you used while you were in that active period. And the intent behind this is to be able to share that information with other healthcare providers that you may be seeing into the future so they know what you went through and what things you might potentially be at risk for developing later. As we've talked about earlier, what might be your risk for a recurrence of the cancer or developing an entirely new cancer, perhaps as a function of your treatment. The second part of the plan is essentially the follow-up care plan. Mm -hmm. And this entails figuring out how often you have to come for visits, who's going to be providing these visits or doing this care, what kinds of tests you might need to follow up for late effects or recurrence of the disease or it's coming back assessment and treatment of any of the side effects that you might currently have, as we mentioned earlier, fatigue or pain or depression or sexual dysfunction, and also an evaluation of your current lifestyle, because what we're learning more and more 
is Cancer for Many is a teachable moment, a moment when individuals have the opportunity to step back and take stock of their lives, not only their health, but also their personal desires and wishes. It's an opportunity to create plans for better health and more personal meaning in one's life. So that's a very part, important part of putting together this sort of survivorship care plan. Uh, so that, that is a great summary, Julie. It really helps us to understand. You need the treatment summary that really lays out what your cancer was, what stage it was, what treatment you had. So that's piece one. And then piece two is the survivor care plan, which is really the roadmap from this point forward, and that every cancer patient, cancer survivor, needs a survivor care plan. Correct. And the idea behind this and the push to have these kinds of sets of information given to patients as they make this transition is to, to prompt a dialogue so that patients and their providers are talking about this experience, what they went through, what kind of care is needed in the future, and who's going to deliver that. In many instances, individuals are going to go back to their primary care physicians who are going to need access to that information. And you want that information also to be knowledgeable about what to do with regard to your health and what things might be beneficial to you to reduce a risk of the cancer coming back or to cope with your illness. So, Gwen Darian, can you tell us, are, is this happening today? Are, are, are we training uh, doctors in how to do these treatment summaries and survivor care plans? Are we uh, educating patients about the fact that they need to, to have this information with them? Where, where, is this, where is this sort of relatively new field kind of, where are we today and, and, and really where is this going? I think that um, my perception in, of it is that people are absolutely talking about it. Mm-hmm. It is, but it is still, I think, too early to get a real sense of how it's impacting patients and how it's impacting doctors and how they interact with patients. Because there will always be, and there always have been, um, healthcare providers who are compassionate, who look at your, who look at you as a whole person. They look at your life. They look at your, um, they look at your uh, the, cir- the circle of your family and friends and your support circle. They look at what your values are. And then there have always been those who pat you on the head and say, and particularly if you're a woman, you know my, you know my job is to cure you, dear. Don't worry about all of these other things. <laughs> So I think it's, I mean, Julie, I don't know if you agree with me, but I think that it's a little too early to, to really see what the impact of all of this has been on long-term survivor health, if we're really going to do it in a more scientific way. Um, no, thanks. I think you're. I think you're right, Gwen. I don't. I think we're just beginning to do this, and just beginning actually to put pressure on the medical community to be more systematic in the delivery of this information. Right. So we are educating on both sides of the block, if you like. We are strongly encouraging survivors to ask for this when you finish your treatment. Talk to your healthcare team. Ask them for this information. Ask them to sit down with you and talk about what it means for you and what your care is going to look like going forward. And on the other side, we're educating physicians about you need to develop these documents, find systems that will pull this information from all the scattered places it is in the medical setting. And that's the big challenge, actually, is many people go to many different places for their care. They may go one place for their surgery, someplace else 
for the radiation, yet another place for their chemotherapy, and it's trying to collect all of that information in one summary document so it's available to everybody who's part of that network and who might be involved in care going forward. So that's not trivial. I don't think we've seen yet what that impact might be. The sense is, however, that it may provide for better informed you know, survivors, which we think in the end run will be very important. Well, let's do and a I focus group the, of uh, let's do a focus group of one here. We have Rich on the phone. Yes, uh, uh, Rich is a uh, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma cancer survivor. Rich, did your medical team talk to you about or offer you a a treatment summary and b a survivor care plan to give you something in writing that outlines what you should be doing moving forward as a cancer survivor? No. No and no. <laughs> it's new. We're no, telling you no it's square. new. It's new. No it's square. coming down the block, and I think the basic message out here is, is you know, and Gwen has said it too, is you've got to, we're stirring up the enthusiasm for this. I, I, I do respect the question she asked behind that, though, and as, and as sort of the, the researcher in me says, we don't have the empirical data yet. We don't have the knowledge base yet to see what the impact of this is. We do know that follow-up by different providers, because there are studies reporting on this, a result in different kinds of gaps. So, for example, our cancer survivors who were followed by cancer specialists Mm -hmm. tend more often to get their cancer screening, not only for the original cancer, but for other kinds of cancers on a more regular basis. Mm -hmm. However, their oncology experts aren't good at managing their cardiovascular symptoms, their diabetes, which is much better done by their primary care physicians. So the question is, how do you get these two groups of physicians communicating and working together so you optimize that that care plan overall? Do do we see this happening more at the big academic cancer centers than we do, let's say, in smaller community practices? Oh, I think so. I think so. But I think also the other issue here, which we started to talk about in the beginning, is that there are different kinds of cancer. Mm-hmm. And at different points, you graduate from a seeing an oncologist to back to seeing an internist mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. based on what kind of cancer that you have had. And, you know, so it, it, I think that it, it, some of these things are a little bit hard to generalize. And the empirical data will show what the value of these plans are, but they will also, I hope, show what some of the long-term issues, show what some of the long-term issues for survivors are as well. Because a lot of the things that we have are anecdotal as opposed to as opposed to research. So I think that there are two ways that it can go. I think that um, one of the things I wanted to say, which is, which is off of a very formal plan, but I think that it was one of the more, most helpful things to me when I was surviving, and I can say it from a very new survivor to now a longer-term survivor, are, the, are some of the paradoxical things that happen to you and how um, and how you should not how that should not upset you. So, I think that one of the things that, that and, and we and and um, which and Julia and Kim alluded to it earlier is people say you're finished with your treatment, just get on with your life. Mm-hmm. But the first year can be the hardest year that after treatment. Gwen, we're going to um, we're going to we're going to pick this up um, right after the break because I think okay. this is a really important topic and I want to go Great. back to it. So we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health & Wellness. 
Holistic health and well-being covers many facets, including stress, time management, weight loss, cardiovascular training, and aging. And that's just to name a few. Your Life Without Limits will help to sort it all out for you. Join host Joe Sardi and the top minds in holistic health and well-being for an educational and entertaining hour. Listen for Your Life Without Limits. Heard every Wednesday afternoon at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle coworkers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. For more than 25 years, the wellness community has been the nation's leader in providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or or at one of our 26 centers in the U.S. and abroad, the wellness community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-WELL or visit us online at www.thewellnesscommunity.org. That's thewellnesscommunity.org. The Wellness Community, celebrating over 25 years of cancer support, education, and hope. A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Wellness Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now, here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Wellness Community. This is Kim Tibaldo, and uh, I want to go back. Um, we're having this wonderful conversation about cancer survivorship. I want to go back to you, Gwen Darian, uh, to follow up on the comments you were making right before we went to the break. Um, so I guess, I mean, I guess one of the, the, the sort of underlying comment that I want to make is that paradoxical responses are, are responses that are very, very common among cancer survivors, mm-hmm. whether they're just out of treatment or whether they're very, or whether they're long-term, or whether they're long-term survivors. And I remember the first time that I had a clean scan a year, uh, a month after I had my, um, a month after I had my was finished with my treatment for non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, and I had an anxiety attack, mm-hmm. and I had mm-hmm. no idea that this was a very common response to this to to good news, this kind of paradoxical response. But nobody told me, so I think that things like that. I mean, talking very openly about some of the some of the some of what seems to be contradictory to. A, um, to a response to cancer or to surviving or to going into remission from cancer I think is critical and I'm hoping that some of these survivorship plans will also address that. I think the other issue is as long-term survivors and also throughout your continuum, people are always saying to you, um, uh, you're in some ways, and, and Rich talked about it in the beginning of this whole notion of surviving, surviving war, surviving something that's a catastrophe, you're often um, expected, there's often an expectation that you 
that you live to a higher level or that somehow it, each day is precious or uh, there are expectations that society puts on you that you are not that that you are not necessarily um, either willing or able to take or if, nor should they be nor should they be expectations that we're all willing to do I think that many of us rich has done it I've done it um, many of us have done things where we've helped other cancer survivors but I was at a dinner party on Friday night and there was a woman who kind of figured out what I did and came up to me and whispered in my ear and said you know I've never wanted to do anything and I'm you know a 20 year Hodgkin survivor and people say to me can I give somebody your number they've just been diagnosed with cancer and of course I have to say yes but then I hope they don't (laughs) well I think it goes back to what we're saying earlier in the conversation there is no one size fits all that's right and then everybody has to make a choice about how they are going to deal with this with these issues post treatment we certainly hear people say they just want to put cancer completely in their past absolutely they don't want to be called a cancer survivor or in any way right. framed right. as that they want you know they they want to move on from this and leave it behind and i think that um i think we really have to allow for that choice for people i, I think that the i think that the the bond the sort of the message of that is that there should be no value judgment no value put judgment. on cancer survivors as to how they should behave once they have once they're survived their diagnosis. Well, let's go to Rich for a minute because, Rich, I know you and I in these conversations uh, that we've had over the past several months, you've talked a little bit about how you've chose to, to, to deal with other people post-treatment, that you made a promise to yourself that you wanted to reach out and help other cancer survivors. Can you just tell us a little bit about uh, about uh, how this is happening formally or, or informally? It's, it's both, really. Yes. Um, one of my goals is, is to be able to share with others uh, who are specifically going through um, non-Hodgkin's or Hodgkin's uh, or a stem cell transplant and address their questions. Uh, I I don't so much want to be able to tell them about what I went through. I want to listen to them and find out what they need because I think that when a person goes through any type of cancer uh, treatment, they need to be able to address what they need and be able to put that into words. I just think it's so, so important and helpful. And uh, both my physician and uh, refers me to people that are going to be going through, in particular, stem cell transplants. And then people at work, I work in a hospital, and uh, I get people who call me there, and I'll get people who know people who work there to call me to get information as well. Uh, one that just happened about eight weeks ago was uh, just by happenstance, I was in uh, the doctor's office, and uh, the gentleman ahead of me had a book under his arm, and I could see... ELL and I could see plants and I thought geez I wonder if this guy's had a stem cell transplant mm-hmm. I, I tugged on his arm and he asked what and I, I said have you had a stem cell transplant and he said no but I just found out today that's what I guess I'm going to be getting so we got out of line after paying our bill and I met with he and his wife and we probably spent about 40 minutes and I tried to answer uh, all the questions that they had and the look on the wife's face told me all I needed to, to know she was like this sense of relief and and he looked at me just before we all stood up and gave a group hug, and he said, I think I can do this. Mm. This, this was a man in his early 50s, and they had three kids. And I'll tell you, <laughs> that did more for me. I don't know what it did for him, but it certainly did a lot for me. And just that personal interaction, that, that personal touch really helped him feel like he could get through this. Just seeing someone who had been through the illness. Was, well, was, and to have my number, and if you want to call me, I don't care what time of the day or night it is, I'm here for you because I know what it means to get that support through any difficult day. Yeah. 
You know, one of the things that we do on this show is we take uh, some some uh, questions that are sent into us by our wellness community folks from around the country at our at our twenty six wellness communities. Um, we we got a question from Linda at the wellness community in Northern Jersey Shore, and and Linda wants to know um, what people with cancer should do when they are surrounded by friends and family yet they still feel alone. And I think this can certainly be applied to when you know someone's going through treatment or, or really even in survivorship post treatment. Um, uh, let me start with you, Julia. Do you have any thoughts for Linda? Oh yeah, absolutely. I think one of the things, and it's one of those paradoxes that Gwen was referring to, mm-hmm. is sometimes it's you one doesn't access these resources until after treatment because you're so busy just trying to make it through the different treatment activities, going to get your radiation or your chemotherapy and just making it day to day, that people aren't don't have the energy to get to a support group or do that kind of outreach. So one point I wanted to make is that it's not uncommon for people actually to seek support groups after treatment ends because then they have, A, more time and perhaps more energy to do this, and B, it's often a time when, as we spoke about before, everybody pulls away resources. So you're being withdrawn from your medical care team. Your family all wants you to be the person you were before this all started. You've got work demands, child demands, et cetera, on you, and people aren't giving you space to recover. Support groups may be a very important place to go and talk about this experience that nobody else now wants to hear about. They sort of, they've been there perhaps, helped you get through it, and now they want you to be well. Uh, and in that regard, I think support groups have a very unique um, role to play in the post-treatment arena in particular, where you can be with a group of individuals who, who get it. They understand what you're going through and can provide you, as Rich said, these really wonderful insights into here's how I've dealt with this or I'm here, we understand it, we know you're going through this. I think it's also important, really important, to let people around you know that this transition, in particular the sort of post-treatment as you're making that recovery, it takes time. It takes as much time to recover as it takes you to get through treatment, and that's sort of the algorithm that I would often tell patients that I saw. When you think back to your very first symptom, to the very last day of your treatment, and if that was eight and a half months, then you need to be thinking about eight and a half months of recovery. And I think that's important. And the final point I wanted to make is really to highlight again what Gwen said, and that's that paradox of, you know, you're supposed to be joyful and happy about finishing treatment. And it's actually a time of very high anxiety for many people. And I would concur with her that, you know, close monitoring over that first year after the end of treatment is important because that's when a lot of these pieces are coming into into focus and where you want to be very closely looking at what are some of the long-term effects, the chronic problems, what are things to look out for, and how can I support you in making a full recovery from this illness experience. So so friends and family can certainly help. Mm-hmm. Friends and family can be important to us, but really sometimes you just can't replace that experience of connecting with right. another person who's going through exactly what you're going through, whether it's cancer or anything else in society, really. Yeah. And I think the other thing, Kim, is to is to let her know that it that she's that that is a common feeling to right. feel lonely within a crowd of healthy people yeah. when you feel yourself in some way alienated and so sometimes just knowing that that is a common feeling helps people Not and she, she can go out and she can talk to people she can have support groups she can talk to um, she can talk to licensed uh, you know uh, oncology social workers yeah. Yeah. but just knowing that other people feel lonely and alienated it and makes you feel even does. less alone yeah and, yeah and you know frankly that was one of the reasons that I did that I started working in cancer advocacy because being a 35 year old cancer survivor 
is a pretty lonely, alienating place to be. And um, it, it was important to me to tell other people that that's the way that some of us yeah. feel. Yeah. We, you know, we're, we're wrapping up uh, now. We could, I think we could talk for hours. We've had a great, uh, great conversation today with Rich McKesh from Florida, Dr. Julia Rowland from the NCI, and Gwen Darian from CR Magazine. I uh, want to thank, thank all of you for taking the time to talk about uh, cancer survivorship and the issues that people uh, face post-treatment. Um, you know, we want to dedicate the show today to Senator uh, Edward Kennedy, to the entire Kennedy family for teaching all of us about survivorship and and facing cancer uh, with strength and dignity. So this is your Frankly Speaking About Cancer for today. And until next time, we want to say be well, do well, and live well. Thank you for joining us for Frankly Speaking About Cancer with your host, Kim Tibaldo. We're here for you every Tuesday afternoon at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. In the meantime, stay connected online at thewellnesscommunity.org. That's thewellnesscommunity.org.